He who is mighty has done a great thing. Amen. Well, we are continuing our celebration and our anticipation of Christmas. We as a church have been walking through several of the, the themes of Advent, and, and we've been lighting candles to remind ourselves of what God has done and what he gives to us at Christmas. And this week we are continuing as we uh, consider and celebrate the virtue of peace. We've celebrated with many different instruments this morning, uh, which is appropriate, and we will continue to do so. You see, peace is something that we are used to hearing about at Christmas time. We, we hear about peace on peace on earth, and it's a virtue that we, that we sing about, it's a virtue that we, that we celebrate, and rightly so. And, and our musicians uh, lead the way in this especially. I was looking through some of my Christmas records and, and saw the theme of peace coming up again and again. I saw uh, Elvis's Christmas Peace record, right? Perhaps you have that one, or, or Johnny Cash's Christmas album. I ran all this by Charlie to make sure that he approved of all this. And, and, and uh, or whose, whose Christmas record is There Will Be Peace in the Valley. And then one of my favorites, Yo-Yo Ma's Christmas album, which is songs of joy and peace. And, and in, it's a reminder, we celebrate peace and consider peace at Christmas. But is the world any more peaceful at Christmas time? I mean, it's a time where we want to see the world through these rose-colored glasses to be more, more peaceful we, because we want to live in a world where conflict is absent. So we sing about silent nights where, where all is calm and all is bright because we have this deep longing for, for a world where we live at, at peace. But we know that's not really the case. But we try, don't we? So often at Christmas, we will play our part to, to contribute to the peace, right? It's, you know, often we see estranged couples coming together for, for Christmas Day, maybe for, the, maybe for the sake of the children, or perhaps you'll, you have a mother who will say something like this, come on, come on, don't fight, it's, it's Christmas, right? Maybe, maybe you'll hear that. And though this doesn't always work, a lot of times it does. We even see this on a national level where we will see nations set aside hostilities for a day or perhaps a season uh, to, you know, for Christmas time. This is what happened in 1914 during World War I, an event that became known as the Christmas Truce of 1914. Perhaps you have, have heard about this. It was an unofficial truce that, that broke out spontaneously along the lines of the Western Front uh, in World War I, both, well, German and French and also British soldiers were, were there fighting, and they had been engaged in brutal, close combat, uh, close quarter combat fighting and, until they laid down their arms on, on Christmas Eve. There's a number of accounts of how this began, but uh, basically what happened was a group of soldiers began to sing Christmas carols on Christmas Eve. And they were close enough to their enemies that their voices uh, traveled across, uh, across enemy lines. And then they were surprised to hear their enemies join in and sing the same carol in their own language. 
A few minutes later, soldiers from both sides of the conflict actually ventured out into no man's land where they began to exchange seasonal greetings with their enemies. They traded for food and for cigarettes and for souvenirs and, and there was a temporary ceasefire that, that was assumed while the soldiers mingled among each other. They took place in prison swap, prisoner swaps. They uh, had religious ceremonies for, for the dead and they even exchanged loved ones, photos of loved ones from back home. I read of one British man who uh, shared a photo of his pregnant wife with a German soldier who took that who took that home. And what was so memorable about this is that even on Christmas Day, they engaged in a football, a soccer match, uh, right there on, on the battlefield. The truce was so impactful, it was so human, that, it, that it, observers in some places noticed that, that once the fighting was set to resume, there were some soldiers who refused to fight. They wouldn't, they wouldn't seek harm against their newfound acquaintances. But like all Christmas peace, it, it didn't last, right? The, the war continued and, and grew in intensity. Nations resume hostilities. Couples stay divorced. And your relationship with your estranged son may remain icy on December the 26th. I think that's part of the disappointment that comes with that Christmas letdown. You know, it's not just that there's no more gifts to open or, or that you have to take the tree down or you can turn off the holiday songs, but it's, it's that uncomfortable back to reality sort of moments that, that come when the holidays, when they end. And, and, and what's so sad about it is that it reminds us this isn't really how the world is, right? And it's sad. Brad Paisley sings about this, prophetically perhaps, that don't you get the sense tonight that for now the world is right. And as another Christmas ends, my mind drifts, and once again, I'm thinking like a six-year-old. Only 364 more days to go, right? It, it, it's sad that, that Christmas time peace is temporary. Or is it? Last week, we discussed how an angel appeared to the shepherds in, in a sky outside of Bethlehem and delivered the Christmas message, the Christmas gospel we have been calling it. And a, an angel appeared and he said, hey, listen, I have urgent news and it's good news. It's news of joy. And the angel's news was that that very night Christ was born. And he wasn't just any regular boy. It wasn't just a normal baby. He was special because he was God. He was God come down to us and he was the Savior of the world. That's what we read about last week. And what I want you to notice today as you have Luke chapter 2 open in front of you is that's not the end of the angel's message. He continues. The angel didn't stop there because he recognized that news like that, that a Savior has been born this very night, that news like that calls for a celebration. And that's exactly what took place. The Bible says that immediately... The angel was joined with a multitude of angels, a crowd of angels, and they exploded into praise for God. Isn't that interesting? 
that, that when the angelic hosts, when they heard the Christmas message, right, when, when they heard the gospel proclaimed on the earth, they recognized its implications. And they recognized that it was a cause for celebration. Shouldn't we do the same? Let's read this passage together. Look down at Luke chapter, Luke chapter 2. I'll start reading in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Will you please pray with me? Father, we come once again with the same prayer because we have the same need. We need to hear from you. So I pray, Father, that you would bless with power the preaching and the reading and the hearing of your word. Father, I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away like a leaf and be forgotten because no one needs to hear from me. We need to hear from you. So, Father, please plant your word in our hearts and let it bear fruit in our lives. We plead and we pray. And let this be to the glory of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, the initial Christmas message was delivered by one single angel. Just one. We don't have his name recorded for us here in the Gospel of Luke, but we see that it is one angel. And that was undoubtedly an incredible spectacle. But God determined that his son deserved more glory. He deserved more than just one angel. And so the, once the news was pronounced, angels from all over the universe gathered and appeared in that rural sky. And it, and it wasn't because the shepherds were important, right? A, a significant part of the story is that they were unimportant. It, it wasn't because the shepherds were there. No, the, the angels had gathered to celebrate because they understood the implications of the Christmas gospel message. They understood that it meant two things, which they, which they sing about in their song. They understand that, number one, the gospel brings glory to God. The gospel glorifies God. And that, number two, the gospel is a gospel of peace. The gospel brings peace to man. We're going to look at each of these in turn, but we're going to focus our attention this morning on the Christian character of peace. The angels declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So I think the musicians are right. It, it is, and the soldiers on the Western Front in 1914 were right that, that Christmas is a time to celebrate peace. It does bring peace. But how? 
and why? And how can we get it now? Just like we said last week, the, that this Christmas season, you may look around at the circumstances of your life and this may be the best year you've ever had. And I'm, I'm happy for you. But I know that for many of us, our lives and our circumstances and our relationships are filled with disappointment and pain and anxiety and strife and, and difficulties. You may look around at the circumstances of your life and see no reasons for peace. Even though Christ came, do we not still grieve the loss of loved ones, especially at, at Christmas? And even though Christ came, we still spend nights in hospitals and we still face the threat of terrorism. So what exactly is this peace that the angels were so excited about? What are, why were they celebrating peace? Or what, what are we missing? What, what's, what's going on here? Well, I would like to draw your attention this morning to three different ways the gospel brings peace. Three ways the gospel ushers in peace, even though we live in a world of conflict. The first way we see is this. The gospel of peace brings to us peace with God. Peace with God. The coming of a Savior is the coming of peace with God. The advent of the Savior is the advent of peace with God. Now, you might be, if you're dialed in and listening, you might be thinking, peace with God? Why? I mean, I don't need peace with God. I'm not, I'm not at war with God, right? Well, but that's just the thing. You see, if we don't see that God and man are, are in marked opposition to each other, if we don't see that, if you don't have a clear picture of that, then there'll be no peace for you to celebrate because no peace is, is needed. As far as I know, no one celebrates the fact that the state of Tennessee and the state of Georgia are at peace, right? We don't celebrate that because there's no conflict. There's no, there's no conflict. We haven't had any hostilities, but that's not the case with mankind and God. As long as humans have been in existence, we have lived in opposition to God because humans have a long history of sinning against God. And we must recognize that all of our sinning, all of it, is a declaration of war against God. It is our opposition to his government. It is our shaking our fists at his rule. And, and this hostility, this hostility that comes with sin is crucial for understanding the gospel. That's why Paul says in, in Romans chapter 5 that we have all been and some of us still are enemies of God. In Romans 5, Paul says, for, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And the key thing to recognize there is that we were enemies of God. Sin is war with God. And so our sinning makes us enemies of God. All of our sinful behaviors, all of our sinful thoughts are, and attitudes are warish acts of aggression against God. And we should remember that all of our sin will be met with an appropriate and just response. The response of God to sin is his wrath. It is his just and righteous and good wrath. You see, the Bible teaches that, that we were by nature enemies of God. Ephesians says, Paul says in Ephesians, that we are even children 
of wrath. And if we are aware of this, if you, if I come and explain to you that you have God as an enemy, that should make you afraid, right? To hear that you have an enemy that is after you should make you be full of apprehension. Every sinner has God as his enemy. And God is a terrible enemy to have. He is rightfully, he rightfully has the terrifying confidence of Liam uh, Neeson in the movies Taken, right? Do you remember his confidence that he has a particular set of skills and you can be absolutely sure that he will bring his wrath upon sinners? Friends, you must understand. If you're going to understand the gospel, if you're going to give a rip about it with your life, if you're going to have joy in your heart over what God has done, it must begin with understanding that God is angry with sinners. And he's angry with all of our sinning. You must see the hostility in order to appreciate the truce and the peace that he brings. Because the Christmas gift that comes with the gospel is that he comes bringing peace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 19, we're reminded that Christ was sent as an agent from God on a peacekeeping mission. Verse 19 says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and then entrusting us with that message of reconciliation. Oh, my dear friends, I'm happy to once again be the one who gets to trumpet the Christian Christmas gospel message that Jesus Christ was sent by God to take away our sins. What this means is that Christ came to earth in order to take away our sins from us, to take them and to bear the wrath of God for us. If there was a bullet of God's wrath with my name on it, Christ stepped in front of that bullet and took it for us. You see, unlike us, Jesus never disobeyed God. He, he never sinned, and so he never had God as an enemy. He always did what was right, and so he didn't deserve any death, and he didn't deserve any suffering, and he didn't deserve any punishment. And even though Christ absolutely had enough power with some left over to stop the cross, he didn't. Instead, he allowed himself, he offered himself up for execution on the cross. Even though this wasn't his fight, even though it wasn't his problem, he made it his fight. He made it his problem. Jesus allowed himself to be taken as a prisoner of war, and he died for it. He suffered and he died for it. The glorious news of the Christmas gospel is that Christ Jesus died as a substitute for rebel sinners like me and like you. He stepped in and he paid the debt that we owed to God and he was utterly destroyed for our sin. Which means that for those who place, who actively place their hope in Christ, no more, no more wrath remains. We just heard sung this morning, no more condemnation. For unto us a child has born. That is the story of Christmas. Jesus came so that no more wrath would remain. That's why he was called Savior. 
And that's what he did. That was his work. Jesus made the way for peace. That's what God was doing at Christmas. He sent Christ as a peacemaker. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So even though our sin gives us sufficient and good reason to live in terror of God, Christ gives us reason to rejoice. He will not count our trespasses against us. Don't get over that, Christian. Don't get over that. He will not count our trespasses against us. Believer, if you are in Christ, then you have great reason to rejoice at Christmas. For though your sins are like scarlet, God has sent a Savior. God has worked so that he would not hold them against you. Instead, your sins can be white, white like snow. But you must recognize the news that this news of peace cannot be enjoyed by everyone in the world. It's a message that is available to everyone, but the peace is not enjoyed by everyone in the world. Look back down at the text, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there is with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. For who? For those with whom God is pleased. Do you see that in, in the text? Who is this peace for? For those that God is pleased with. Though the Christmas message is available for all men, it only benefits those with whom God is pleased. So if God is not pleased with you, you have no reason for peace. You'd be a fool to have it. The only way for God to be pleased with you, the only way to make that happen is to throw, to cast your lot in with Christ his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. Sinner, listen. You cannot please God on your own. You can't give enough to Lottie Moon. You can't make enough peace with those who have sinned against you. You cannot do enough good deeds to make up for the sin you have already committed. The damage has already been done. It does not matter how much aid you send into the blast zone. The bomb has already been dropped and the suffering has already been unleashed. The only way to find peaceful favor with God is to identify with Jesus Christ, God's peacemaker. So to all unrepentant sinners, I I plead with you this Christmas morning or this Christmas season to be reconciled to God In Christ. The gospel at Christmas, the Christmas story, makes peace with God available to us. But there's another kind of peace that that Christmas brings, that Christ brings, and that is that is inner peace. Inner peace. Later on in his life, the Savior he told his disciples, you probably remember this verse, that my peace I leave with you, my my peace I give to you. Not 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 as the world gives, do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. It's no secret that humanity struggles with many internal anxieties. 
A large portion of the human race is clearly deeply emotionally troubled. Just last month, one of the magazine, one of the covers of Time magazine featured a story about the epic, um, the epic rise in depression and anxiety among American teenagers. American teen children and teenagers are tormented by dangerously high rates of depression. Some engage in cutting themselves and, many, and have many other serious emotional problems. One out of every six Americans takes some sort of drug to address some sort of psychiatric problem. And, there, and there's many reasons for this, but I state it simply to point out that we are a troubled people and we're seeking inner peace. But the good news of the Bible is that God is a God of peace. And the God of peace has sent the Prince of Peace to give us inner peace. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul talks about this and, and, and he explains, he speaks of the incredible inner peace that is found in, in knowing Christ. And, and so much so that this peace is so significant that Paul actually commands Right? There's a command in the Bible that tells us not to be anxious, not to be anxious about anything. And the reason for that is that we can instead enjoy the inner peace of God, which transcends all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds. So there's no reason, there's no place for anxiety in the life of a believer when we understand what God has, has done. When Paul gave this command, he, he wasn't delusional, right? He, didn't, he wasn't operating under the impression that our lives are not going to have difficulties or that, that we're not going to struggle with, with anxieties and fears and depression and, and all these. He understands that our lives are still going to have trouble. Jesus understood the same thing, and, and that's why he said in John chapter 16 that I've said these things to you so that you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but but I have overcome the world. You see, when the angels declared that peace had come, peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased, they were not declaring that the trouble on, on earth is done. They were not saying that, that earth's troubles would cease. They were not yet declaring an end to war and into sickness and into conflicts. Instead, they were declaring that God's hostility towards man had ceased. No longer must man live in dread of the wrath of God. No longer must man dread death. Just as we said last week, these gospel realities overshadow all other temporal realities and they leave us with the assurance that, that no matter what kind of trouble you're facing and no matter what kind of trouble you're going to face in your future, that God is no longer against you. He's with you. Emmanuel, God with us. If God was willing to send his son to die for our biggest problem, if God was willing to send Christ to deal with our sin problem, is he not also going to deal with our smaller problems? You see, God himself is the God of peace. He's not anxious, right? He's not frustrated. He is filled with peace. And if we are connected to him by faith, then we too can experience his inner peace in all of its fullness. I don't say this to, to make light of worldly concerns. 
No, not at all. G- Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do that as he saw others suffering. He didn't do that in, in his own suffering. Jesus didn't make light of those who were suffering around him, but instead he helped them place it into the context of God's incredible love for us, which is demonstrated on the cross of Christ. J.I. Packer addresses this in, uh, with a quote in his book, from, his book, Knowing God. He says this, that there is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with the full assurance that they have known God and God has known them and that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. The angels understood this. That's why they celebrated. They, they knew the peace that that baby in a manger was bringing. And it caused them to burst into song. And so for the first time since, since the advent of sin, the advent of Christ ushered in a new declaration of peace on earth. Peace on earth. But there is still yet another dimension of peace that we find in the gospel. A peace that dawned that first Christmas night, and that is peace with man. Peace with man. Not only does God's reconciling peace on the cross bring us inner peace, and not only does it make peace with God possible, but it actually makes it possible to live at peace with other people. The gospel makes it possible to live at peace with other people. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We'll be there for just a few moments. Romans chapter 12, and look down at verse 8. One of my former seminary professors, a counseling professor, um, said that this is the Bible's most realistic verse about human relationships. I think that's helpful. Look at Romans chapter 8, where this is what Paul says. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I'd like to draw your attention to four truths about this text, four things that we can learn about this peace that we can have with man that comes from Romans chapter 12. The first is this, that it is our duty to seek peace. It is our duty as believers to seek peace. Paul's command is to live peaceably with all. The NIV translates it that, uh, that we should live at peace with everyone. According to Paul, Christ does more than just make peace possible. He actually comes and issues for us the obligation, the command, the duty to live at peace wherever possible, to pursue peace. Here's how this works. Since God has pursued peace with us, his enemies, he now turns around and commands us to pursue peace with our enemies and everyone in between. Since God has pursued us, his enemies, to make peace, we are now commanded to go out and pursue peace in all of our conflicts. And what this means, just think about that. That means that if we fail to seek peace with other people, we're failing to obey God. If you fail to seek peace with other people, you're failing to to obey God. Peace is not 
optional. The pursuit of peace is not optional. You cannot, friends, you, if you leave the church because you're mad at someone, you're disobeying God. If you refuse to seek peace with your spouse, no matter what she or he has done, you're disobeying God. If you refuse to talk to someone who has hurt you, you're disobeying God. If Christ was willing to endure the hostilities and the humiliations of humanity in order to suffer a crucifixion to pursue us while we were his enemies, then we must imitate him as we pursue peace with our enemies. Do you see? If Christ did this for us, we must in turn pursue peace with others. It's our duty to seek peace. Secondly, we can see from this text that it is our duty to seek peace with everyone. There are no exceptions. No matter how serious the sin, no matter how deep the wounds, no matter how impossible peace seems, our peacemaking efforts must extend to all of our relationships. No one is exempt. If you're not willing to pursue peace with your daughter or your mother or even your divorced husband, you're failing to obey God because the standard is as high as the heavens. It can be overwhelming, can't it? The standard is as high as the heavens. <coughs> Excuse me. We're not permitted to exclude any relationships, no matter how serious the history is. But we can also learn from this text that, <coughs> that while we are to pursue peace, we have to leave the results to God. Pursue peace and leave the results to God. Paul says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You see, the sad reality of life in a fallen world is that not all of our peacemaking efforts are going to be accepted. Think about this, that even Christ himself, who was the perfect peacemaker, was rejected by billions. Right? I mean, if Christ was rejected, then we can understand and expect that our peacemaking efforts will be rejected at times. But this doesn't get us off the hook for pursuing peace. But it does get us off the hook for the burden of how our peacemaking efforts are going to be received. Because of sin, and there are times, there are many times when peace is not possible, but it should never be because of us. You see, conflict is always started by sin. There is no conflict that does not grow out of sin. There is no conflict where both parties are pleasing God. That's not possible, right? Sin is always the cause of our conflicts. And no matter what the conflict is, we, all, we virtually always contribute to that conflict in some sort of sinful way, right? That's, that's what sinners tend to do, right? When people sin against us, we tend to sin in, in response. And, and so we, have, we usually contribute to the conflict with our own sin. So, so here's what this means. That, that as people who have been radically forgiven, we must now pursue peace. We must chase it. We must go after it like we're, like we're hunting. We must seek forgiveness and repent of all the known sin in our lives, right? We start with ourselves, we, and then we must be willing to extend forgiveness to others. But ultimately, we, we do those things, but ultimately we leave the results to God, I know that there are many broken relationships that are represented in this room that, that perhaps one person has sought reconciliation and another person has refused. Leave it to the Lord. 
the Lord is judge. As far as it is possible, so much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We have one final thing we can learn from this text is that we, as we pursue peace, we must keep the gospel in mind. I've been explaining this uh, throughout this, but the, but the picture is this, that you see, this command comes to us in Romans chapter 12, right? Hopefully you've read Romans and you're familiar with Romans 1 through 11. And if so, you understand that this is coming after 11 chapters of just gospel dynamite, right? It's just chapter after chapter of impeccable Pauline logic explaining how the gospel works and, and what that means. <coughs> and once Paul has, has laid a foundation, he, he then goes on in 12 through 16 to to explain all the implications that the gospel has for our lives. And, and you see, I know that there's some conflicts that are so bad that, or that sin has done so much damage that it seems impossible to pursue peace. But, but the picture that we have here is that the gospel, right, chapters 1 through 11, enables chapter 12. The gospel enables us to pursue peace. The gospel is the power to pursue peace even with our enemies. And once we begin to, to grasp this, once we begin to understand in our hearts, to understand the gospel, that, that God has sent Christ on a peacemaking effort, that we will then be compelled, that as we live in view of God's mercy, right, Romans 12, that we will then respond in worship. We'll offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We will be willing to forgive people who've done horrific things. That is our act of worship. So we can see why the angels were celebrating, right? When we, when we begin to understand all this, that, that into a world of turmoil and conflict, the gospel brings peace. Peace with God. Peace with ourselves and peace with our fellow man. And even though the angels delivered their, their message of peace into a world that is still, it was then and is still now stained by sin, they celebrated it nonetheless. John Calvin, reflecting on this verse, he said, let us, let us remember that faith is seated amidst the storms of temptation, amidst various dangers, amidst ver violent attacks, amidst contests and fears so that our faith may not be shaken by any kind of opposition. The angels celebrated what God had done in the midst of a world of turmoil. And God calls us to have faith that does the same thing. You see, that kind of faith and that kind of peace was made possible by the advent of Jesus Christ. who came to, to make peace with us, the, the rebels of his kingdom, so that we would know the inner peace of God which surpasses all understanding and so that we would in turn, as far as it is possible with us, extend undeserved forgiveness to other sinners around us, especially those who are our enemies. You see, the good news of the gospel is a reason to celebrate. It is a reason to celebrate. I love how in this text that, that after this, this one angel announces the birth of Christ, that he's immediately joined by a heavenly host. I think the reason for that is one voice is not enough to praise the glorious God of peace. Right? He deserves much more than one voice, even if it's an angel's voice. 
I find it interesting that the famous Hallelujah Chorus, it's, it's not a solo, right? It's sung by a multitude. It's meant to, sung, to be sung by multitudes of angels and billions of redeemed former rebel sinners who have been pursued and tracked down and caught by the grace of God. People who say with humility and awe, hey, I was once far off. I was once an enemy of God, but now I've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So yes, I'll forgive you, right? Because I can't get over what, what God has done. I know this God of peace. And so now I have peace with him and I have peace in my heart and I can have peace with those around me. This helps us, I think, understand the incredible prophecy that Isaiah forecasted before Christ came. In Isaiah chapter 9, where he said, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will what? There'll be no end. The gospel is a gospel of peace, and it's going to be increasing and pushing and growing forever. The gospel is a gospel of peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the happiness, the joy, the glory of God will accomplish this. So church, let's be a people who understand and see the gospel, and then let's say with the angels, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Will you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Lord, we recognize that just as we did not initiate love towards you, but that you instead initiated love with us. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to see the beauty of the gospel. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who in turn initiate love and forgiveness with other people. Would you give us power to do this, we pray, and to see your beauty. We ask this in your name. Amen.